It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest minutes of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Big hour coming your way. Call Rove in studio. You can watch him on Fox Nation. We'll post it on YouTube. And then if you want to know what's happening in Capitol Hill, 1-800-CHAD-PERGRAM. He's going to tell us what's happening with these two huge spending bills. And Carl is only going to give me one segment today. Then he's got to run to television, hence the makeup. So let me get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Panamanian Foreign Minister Erica Moynez, and she warned that what we just saw at the border, a surge of Haitian migrants coming into the United States largely, is nothing compared to what's coming. As many as 60,000 people are down in Colombia, Peru, and other areas, and she says this next wave is about to hit the United States. Yeah, that, that's called a heads up. Don't pretend like you don't know what's coming through Colombia into Panama, uh, eventually to Mexico, and through our border. The border breakdown. We told you. You ignored us, says the Panama uh, foreign minister. The message from Panama officials is thousands more are coming. Another epic fail for the whole Biden administration. The worst seems yet to come. Number two. On the issue of uh, why we didn't bring out civilians and SIVs sooner, the call on, on how to do that and, and, and when to do it is really a, a State Department uh, call. And we certainly would have liked to have seen it go faster. This is why Lloyd Austin should have been there two weeks ago with Tony Blinken. He could have called out the State Department with the State Department there, and we might have been able to get to the bottom of this. But gutless, he stands up and says that. Afghanistan, the more our generals talk, the more we know President Biden let our nation down, and they were too weak to stop him. And he, they, are, they embarrassed our country on the world stage. It's going to take generations for us to recover. Meanwhile, we, we have civilians scrambling to get our uh, citizens out of Afghanistan, and the White House, Defense Department, and State Department choose to be indifferent. Number one. There's no world where the infrastructure bill is going to pass today. Um, not only is there not a reconciliation agreement, there's not a framework. There's not, as you guys are talking about, there's not even a number right now from Cinema or from Mansion. So, you know, the progressives have held the line on this. Yeah, uh, spending palooza, which was supposed to cover President Biden in liberal glory, could be about to go ablaze. The inside story of the Mansion Cinema Squad intramural war, in which we can only hope the moderate heads will prevail. Uh, Carl, welcome back in studio. Oh my it's amazing. God. And your new studio. You yeah. used to be in a dark, dismal corner over in the corner of the Bad, building. right? And now you're in a bright, dismal corner. I can see the outside. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You can see it through three sets of windows. Right. Exactly. They, they don't let me yeah, they, uh, they are making sure I do not uh, go outside, but I'm allowed to see outside. Carl, first off, uh, the inside story on the passing of these two bills uh, are we going to be surprised at the last minute? Is there a deal for 3.5 and a deal for the 1.2 bipartisan? I, no, there's no deal for on the 3.5. There, there is a slim chance that people say, you know what, this is going to go down unless I vote for it, and we got to get something rather than nothing. So the bipartisan bill narrowly passes, but I think the odds of that are very, very slim. I think today we're going to see an utter total collapse of the Biden domestic agenda. If the Republicans in the House asked you what they should do, because evidently, I believe the reports, there are 23 hard yeses and at least 45 hard no's for the Democrats, what would you tell them? 
Well, look, look on the one point two. Look on the one point two. I'm I'm actually in favor of that bill, and I'll tell you why. First of all, seven hundred billion dollars of it is the reauthorization of the Highway Trust Fund, which we do every five years and have been doing so since the 1950s. That's roads and bridges. And then the other 500, just under 500 billion, is mostly, you know, it's like another $110 billion for roads on top of the Highway Trust Fund. And it's paid for, the Highway Trust Fund is paid for by the highway tax, the gas tax. And the rest of it is largely, not completely paid for by sopping up the unused monies that we already appropriated in 2000, March of 2000, 20 for COVID, December of 2020, and March of 2021. And I'd rather get that money put into something that's actually going to, you know, airports and so forth. But and the most important thing is this. It is the Senate version of the reauthorization of the Highway Trust Fund because the House version, Peter Fazio, the chairman of the House Transportation Committee, has written a reauthorization of the Highway Trust Fund that says you cannot spend any of the monies – on expansion of capacity in the interstate highway system. How do you do that? Why? why? Because you want to. They don't you want, want you make, driving. Yeah, they want. They don't want you driving. You want. To, they want to make it more difficult for people to drive, and they take all that money and put it into mass transit. But think about that. No additional capacity. You can't add a lane to an existing interstate. You can't create a new interstate. One of the things that we're worried about in Texas is we've got all this commerce coming up from Mexico and going to Mexico, selling things to into Mexico, bringing things out of Mexico and buying them. And we need interstates lot to, from South Texas to link into our existing, you know, to get that stuff to Houston or to get stuff from Houston to Mexico. And and the idea that you're not going to allow any additional capacity on the interstate system is insane. I have not heard that anywhere. And let me ask you something. That's in the bill right now, in the bipartisan bill? No, the bipartisan what? bill is the Senate version. You, you oh, go okay. back, the Senate Transportation Committee voted overwhelmingly in favor of the of, uh, gotcha. of that, that provision because they knew how bad the House was. And they wanted to jam the House by making the bipartisan bill a sensible bill when it came to roads and highways. Not the idiotic bill that the House had So I'm looking at the this. latest polls uh, for when it comes to President Biden. Response to the coronavirus, uh, he now has uh, uh, 57% disapproval when, uh, approval when it comes to that, believe it or not. Uh, the U.S.-Mexican border, 33% approval. But here's the thing. He's above water in one other area, the economy. If this does not pass, even though we think— that it would be great for the economy for this not to pass. We're not in a crisis situation. No reason to make a new, new, new deal. Right. Uh, does he get hurt on this? Well, I think he gets hurt on the economy. Yes, he gets hurt on this because it, it speaks to his leadership. People say he's a weak leader. He laid out this big vision and he couldn't get it done. And his party is bitterly divided. And the divisions inside the Democratic Party are going to grow if this thing goes down because the progressives are going to say it's the the moderates, the centrists that brought it down. The centrists are going to say, you guys are the lunatics who are trying to spend money we don't have for things we don't need. And and that's not going to help them going into 2022. On the other hand, if they pass the $3.5 trillion deal, more Democrats will lose than if they fail, in my opinion, because you will have a couple – you will have some centrist members of the House who are able to say, you know, I helped stop that idiotic $3.5 trillion deal, and that will help them back home. But but you know they're they're going to lose the house. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They're going to lose the house. Here is uh, Senator Manchin, and you tell me what you think Senator Manchin will eventually do. But here's what he said yesterday while walking. Cut three. In your statement, you mentioned trillions of dollars in spending. And one of the pushbacks from progressives and from the president has been that this would be zero dollars in spending because it would be paid for. What's your response to that? We're looking at everything. We all agree on doing tax reform. Let's do tax reform. So he said it would be he gave a long letter. And in that statement, he says, 
what I have made clear to the president and the Democratic leaders, uh, that we are spending trillions more on new and expanded government programs. We can't even pay for the essential social programs we have, like Social Security and Medicare. It's the definition of fiscal insanity. He sounds so much like a Republican yeah. or just a person walking the streets who just says, what is this for? What's this about? Yeah. Well, there were a group of Democrats who recently signed a report saying that Social Security is going belly up in 2033 that we will literally bust the, the Social Security trust fund and that overnight people who get a Social Security check will see their benefits drop 24 percent. And those Democrats included the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen. So he's not the only Democrat who's awakening to the reality that we're running out of money. And, and you know, I, I, there's a brilliant column today in the Wall Street Journal, well-written, insightful, thoughtful. I think it's a, I think I did a hell of a job on it myself. I was going to say you did. That's you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because – this comment by Biden that, you know, my plan costs zero is the akin to Barack Obama saying, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. It is an utter unmitigated lie. And the ordinary Americans are going to say, really, you're going to spend $3.5 trillion, actually $5.5 trillion of our money, and you say it costs zero? No, it's going to cost money. And that money is going to come out of the rest of the economy, out of the pockets of American companies, American workers, American families, American communities. I want to move on and talk about Afghanistan, a war that started when you were uh, in the White House with President uh, Bush. And I want to tell you, I want to know if you feel the same way uh, as General Milley when he went out of his way to make this statement, uh, this statement yesterday, cut 18. The war was a strategic failure. It came also at an incredible cost in the end with 11 Marines, one soldier, and a Navy corpsman. These 13 gave their lives so that people they never met would have an opportunity to live in freedom. And we must remember that the Taliban was and remains a terrorist organization, and they still have not broken with al-Qaeda. I have no illusions who we are dealing with. So I agree with everything he said except his opening sentence. But we, this was not a strategic failure. It wasn't. We destroyed the Taliban, removed them from power. We we made Afghanistan no longer a safe haven from which attacks could be launched on our homeland like they did on 9-11. And that list lasted for 20 years. Our combat role ended there four years ago. The last military death before the deaths at the airport was in February of last year. We were we were down to twenty five hundred people, and we were maintaining intelligence. Don't forget the NATO people, five thousand six hundred. Five thousand, yeah, and NATO allies, more NATO allies, twice as many NATO, more than twice as many NATO allies were there as Americans. They wanted to stay, and they wanted to stay because they knew it was in their interest to have a stable government in Afghanistan, propped up if need be by Americans. Remember. We had the same issue. You go back to South Korea. South Korea, 20 years after the end of the so-called, you know, the Korean War, at the, the so-called armistice, 20 years after that, South Korea was still a problem. It was, a, it was not a democracy, military coup, just, you know, an unstable country. But we stayed. And today it is one of our great allies. And does anybody think that if we had withdrawn from South Korea 20 years after the armistice in, 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 the, in, in the Korean Peninsula, that if we'd withdrawn, does anybody think that Kim, the, the, the Kim family would not have 
ordered the troops south to take over the peninsula. We're still in Europe today. Why? Because of Russia. Tripwire. Yeah, tripwire. And does anybody think that if we had 20 years in 1965, no we'd said, we're out of here. Does anybody think that, these, that the Soviet Union would be gone today? No. Also, if you remember in 2014, I know you do, President Obama says we have changed postures. We're in a defensive posture. So we right. were backing up the Afghan government. Who? So we weren't, it's not, we weren't trying and, and to win. And 66,000 members of the military and security forces yeah. of Afghanistan died in, in maintenance of their of their independence. And we gave it up to them. We just turned it over to the Taliban. And if you don't think, I mean, it, you could just go online and see the celebrations in Kabul where, uh, where, uh, where the Taliban is celebrating the defeat of the United States of America because no we reason. walked away. And I loved it. The president said, we're ending the war on terror. Well, you go tell that to the al-Qaeda. You go tell al-Qaeda that the war is over. You tell ISIS it's over. You tell the Taliban it's over. And they're laughing in your face because they're coming for us and our allies and our interests. 12 to 36 months, General Milley said they're going to reconstitute. Could be the six. Strike it. Yeah, it yeah. could be ready to strike here at home. Okay. They didn't listen to you. The president didn't listen to you at all. We remember Secretary of Defense Mattis said uh, when Trump said, I'm pulling everybody out of Syria. Uh, he ended up not doing that and abandoning the Kurds. Uh, Secretary Mattis said, I told you I can't, can't go along with that. I quit. He said he did. The president Trump deserves a secretary of defense that he respects more that he will listen to. He's not listening to my advice. Just a short course. That's what he meant. Obviously, what we heard over the last two days is everything that we've read. And that is that they told him to stay 25 to 4,000 troops. They never said leave Bagram Air Base. They did say it was going to fall. They didn't know when. And he ignored all of them. And then lied to us. Went out and said, I didn't get any kind of advice like that from anybody. I don't remember hearing anybody. Well, maybe he was telling the truth. Maybe he can't remember them walking in and saying, Mr. President, this is an utter unmitigated disaster that you're proposing. So so it's not over. We have thousands. And we can't get a number, hard number from anyone, nor do I see any passion about getting Americans, allies and green card holders out, including a plane that was in the air yesterday that was refused to uh, landing permission at JFK and Dulles, had to go to O'Hare. And we believe it's on the ground now full of Americans, including American children. Here's what Michael Waltz said. Twenty two. This war is not done. It's not over. This is a war against Islamic extremism. It's a war against an ideology. And just as it took decades, decades, not 20 years, not 30 years, many more, to defeat the idea of communism, to defeat the idea of fascism, it's going to take decades to defeat the idea of Islamic extremism. And he went on to say this reality, cut 21. Panchir has been taken. Frankly, they're being slaughtered right now as we speak with our weapons, with our damn equipment. Our allies are being slaughtered. Every morning we wake up to beheading videos, to executions, to people being hunted down with our own database. And you just see these blank faces staring back at him. They go, the State Department's supposed to get people out. The state said Defense Department's supposed to get people out. We have private organizations getting people out. Yeah, thank God for the private organizations. Those are the people who are getting people out. And they're not going to get enough out. And it is a stain on the United States of America that our allies, who stood by us and defended our values and our country, from further attacks are being slaughtered because of the incompetence of this administration and a decision made by a president who will refuse to listen to his advisors and thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Worth reading. I read when General Mattis was sitting in your seat, you call Rove's in studio and you got to run, I know. But he said to me, in General Mattis's book, he talks about uh, being in Iraq and yeah. in comes the vice president. 
And he's trying to convince the vice president and lay out with a series of maps and pictures and schemes of why we should stay and what could happen. And he said, forget it. We're done. We're out of here. And he cut him off mid-sentence and he left. He said, I asked General Mattis, is this guy running for president? Do you really feel secure about that? He answered vaguely. And then he said, I never would have put that in the book if I thought for a second he'd run for president. I don't want to be political. But that's what he thinks of Joe Biden. Don't tell me he's old. This is what he thinks. Final thought? Yeah, look, he, he is a, a man who gets stuck on a bad idea and defends the bad idea. And unfortunately, he's now in a position to execute the bad idea. And it's not just on the on Afghanistan that is on a whole range of issues. This guy is turning out to be a disaster. We have had two presidents who were born in Pennsylvania. One is Joe Biden and the other one was James Buchanan, inarguably the worst president the United States ever had. That's where he's heading. Cole Rove, good luck on TV. Thanks so much. Back in a moment. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Steph Kite had an interview with Panamanian Foreign Minister Erica Moynez, and she warned that what we just saw at the border, a surge of Haitian migrants coming into the United States largely, is nothing compared to what's coming. As many as 60,000 people are down in Colombia, Peru, and other areas, some already making their way through the dangerous Darien Gap in Panama. And she says this next wave is about to hit the United States. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. So that is a reporter on MSNBC describing what's happening in Central America because they're coming from uh, Haitians are coming through. Uh, they're leaving some of their Central American, South American positions some in Brazil, 
They're going through Colombia, and now they're going through the Panama de- uh, jungle, and then they're getting to Mexico, and Mexico's saying, go ahead, go right into America, Joe Biden's America. That's what's happening. And if you were horrified by what you saw over last weekend, it's going to get worse. And what I think is worse is nobody should be surprised by this because the president's been told about this. And if I work that job of HHS, I'm going myself. I don't need the president. That's my job. I got to head it off. I got to talk to my ally uh, in pa- Panama. I'll talk to my counterpart and I say, listen, you got to f- figure out a way to stop it from coming through. And I'll reward you this way or I'll withhold aid this way. You leverage them to take action. Instead, they're lobbying with Mexico to get rid of the Remain of Mexico policy. I kid you not. Chad Pergram's next. We go inside the spending bill and so much more. Also, I'll be on at 7 o'clock tonight on Primetime, 7 o'clock on Fox News Channel. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Mr. Manchin is concerned about the national debt. He's right. So am I. But I trust that he understands that this reconciliation bill will be fully paid for by asking the wealthiest people in this country and the largest corporations to start paying their fair share of taxes. So if you're concerned about the debt, that is not, should not be an issue in this bill. All right, good. It's paid for. This should be easy. Chad Pergram knows it's a different story than that. Uh, and joins us now, uh, Chad is congressional correspondent. Uh, he loves stuff like this, and we love to hear what he has to say about this. Chad, are we going to get a vote today about the on the bipartisan bill that was approved by the Senate? It's unclear. Uh, the reason is we just don't know if they have the votes. Now, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, historically, she does not go to the floor with bills and lose. Uh, this is the reality that's setting an end for the Democrats here, where they only have a three-vote margin. And when you have uh, moderates who say, we have to have this vote today, or we're going to be against the big social spending bill whenever that comes down the pike, uh, and you can only lose three, but you have you know up to maybe 50 progressives who say that they're willing to bolt because the social spending bill is not done, what do you do in the middle? The, the math, as I always say, does not add up. Now, the one advantage that Pelosi has is that there is a list of at least 10 Republicans and maybe a couple more who would vote for this bill. This is a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, There are some who might wait to see if it's going to pass and the Democrats are going to pass it on their own, and then they would jump in and vote yes. Otherwise, they might vote no. Remember that the Republican leadership has whipped against passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The reason is that they say that this is tethered to the bigger social spending bill, which, of course, is not even uh, on the radar screen yet. It's not done. Okay. Uh, I read earlier in the week there's 23 hard yeses for Republicans and 45 hard noes minimum for Democrats. Does that mean anything to you? Well, this is what we have heard, you know, whether or not there's this game of chicken going on right now uh, with, uh, with you know, these 45 to 50 progressive um, Democrats who would vote no and blow up the entire thing. That's the pressure that will be on them. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, though, she's a very good vote counter. She's very good about counting things right down to the vote. The problem that she does have sometimes is when you have to rely on votes from the other side, 
I was told that that number you mentioned 23, that seems high compared to my reporting, frankly. Uh, you know, I was told that it's more in the 10, 11, 12 range and could get a little higher than that. There's a list of maybe up to about 25 Republicans who could or maybe even politically should vote for this, frankly. But that seems a little high. But things can change. So uh, uh, Joe Manchin not only did not get on board after the president's meeting, he put out a long statement. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, what I've made clear to the president and other leaders, uh, that spending trillions of dollars in expanding government, which can't even pay for essential social programs like Social Security and Medicare, is the definition of physical insanity. He goes on to say, while I'm hopeful and common ground can be found that would result in another historic investment in our nation, I cannot and will not support trillions in spending. That prompted uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, who represents the squad in the left-left wing, cut four. Progressive say, caucus. She's yeah, the Progressive Caucus chair. Cut yes. four. He needs to either give us an offer or this whole thing is not going to happen. I can tell you that his statement has just probably created at least a bunch more votes on the House floor against a bipartisan bill. So because you needed to, they wanted tethered to a reconciliation package, and it's clear if they say it's tethered, they're not being uh, honest because Manchin says, I am not a board. And it's just not Joe Manchin. It's it's Kirsten Sinema, the uh, moderate Democratic senator from Arizona, too. Now, to be clear, there is some interpretation in the building that Joe Manchin left very little wiggle room in his very declarative, almost scathing statement last night. But this is also classic Joe Manchin of, you know, engaging in negotiations. You have to remember he voted for the framework of the reconciliation package uh, several weeks ago, back in early August. So he kind of green-lighted this, otherwise they'd be completely stuck. And what that tells me, even though that that was a pretty definitive statement, is that it doesn't really blow this up yet. Uh, He has said for a long time, it's going to take several weeks, but how do you get both wings of the Democratic caucus together? You know, you could bring down the price tag. Uh, you know, I, I'm told that this is really not about the price tag either. You know, maybe to $2.5 trillion. But what you start to do is change how long programs run for. Therefore, it's not as expensive. You know, it's a two-year program versus a four-year program or something like that. There's all sorts of ways to move around the shelves. Um, and then and, and you have to find that sweet spot. But these are the realities, and I've talked about this all year, when you only have a, a 50-50 Senate and a three-vote margin in the House of Representatives right now, when the Democrats you know, promise their base the moon, it's really hard to deliver on the moon. So tell everyone, Chad, why they didn't vote Monday and why they really feel compelled to vote today. Nancy Pelosi gave her word to whom a couple weeks ago? She gave her word to the moderate Democrats, saying that we would vote by this past Monday uh, on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Well, it is now Thursday, of course, and I have been told that they were willing to give her several days after that, you know, have that firm commitment. Uh, And so if if Pelosi backs away from that and there is not a roll call vote on that, she's not going to have the moderates in any way, shape, or form, probably when they do the social spending bill. That's a real problem. Or she has to work really, really hard to get them back. You know about communications. I know you got to run, too, because you got to work this story. So I understand if you had to go. Uh, Congress, uh, Speaker Pelosi said this yesterday, and it's got everybody buzzing and, and communications experts wondering what they're thinking. Cut one. It's not about a dollar amount. The dollar amount, as the president said, is zero. This bill will be paid for. It's about what are the values that we share and how we prioritize them. And that is the place that we would go. 
She, they keep saying zero. It's going to be behavior zero. And I guess they're trying to say that tax is going to be $3.5 trillion, but it's not going to be a $3.5 trillion bill. She's basically admitted that. And the taxes aren't going to make it a paid for. And if, they, if these taxes do, it'll dramatically change the whole uh, taxing structure along with our spending budget. And you don't really know, you know, in out years when they put these things in, whether or not they will be paid for. You know, there is something here called static scoring, uh, which is saying you're, when the Congressional Budget Office does these evaluations, they, they base it just on, you know, dollars and cents and numbers and integers and things like that. Well, you then have hurricanes and wildfires and wars and pandemics. Uh, you know, look at what happened with the, the, the Trump tax cuts, you know, the idea that that was supposed to be paid for. And then we had to spend, and, you know, some people can argue about some of the spending with it, but trillions upon trillions of dollars to deal with the pandemic. Uh, so that blew that out of the water. You know, we were down at uh, almost $6 trillion in debt, and, and the numbers were going in the right direction, uh, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000. And then what happened? 9-11 and wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so that shot things up. And the baby boomers started to retire. And so that's why when they say these things are paid for, they really rarely are. All right, uh, Chad, prediction? Nancy Pelosi does not go to the floor and lose. So and if she puts it on the floor, chances are it passes. Right. Uh, so there'll be, no, there'll be no mystery. If you hear there's going to be a vote, what time would it be? Uh, that's up in the air here. I mean, supposedly this would happen in the late afternoon, evening. But uh, as a very learned congresswoman from Ohio, Deborah Price, once told me a long time ago when I met her for a, a, a – there was a meeting in the majority leader's office at 1230 on a Saturday morning. And I was there because she was trying to meet with John Boehner. And I said, why are you having a meeting at 1230 in the morning? And she said, because things happen around here, Chad, when they happen. So things will happen here when they happen. <laughs> And, you, and you're not going to sleep much. you got to be ready. We're ready for anything. All right, Chad. Uh, I don't remember a time where there's this many questions. Uh, and also, uh, my last question to you is this. They say Joe Biden came from an era where Democrats would never let a Democratic president suffer a loss like this. Is it a different era? Well, but this is also where Joe Manchin realizes he can get something out of this. Remember where he delayed the vote on the $1.9 trillion COVID bill back in uh, March? And he negotiated and basically got something what he wanted. He delayed things really about 12, 14 hours there. So this is kind of that delay on steroids. Now, maybe, you know, he, he detonates the entire thing. We'll see. But it, 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 it's not done yet. You know, sometimes these things do take longer than you would expect. Uh, I will say, and I've said this since earlier this year, this reminds me a lot of the effort in 93 and 94 to pass Hillary Care where they dithered for months and months and months and then finally realized they'd never had the votes to pass the, the, the bill. This was the first effort at health care reform, and it just never happened. Good. Chad, I look forward to you reporting all day. Thanks so much. Thank you. one 408 So I asked Chris Christie that last night after Nancy Pelosi rolled uh, that soundbite out saying it's going to be free. It's not going to cost anything. Cut to. Nancy Pelosi is lying again. Because, first of all, $3.5 trillion is not the real number. It's closer to $5 trillion is what the real number is. And that's according to the Wall Street Journal. Um, they're, they're lying about the numbers. It is not paid for. And that's why Joe Manchin is standing up and saying no in their caucus. He won't do this. And if they can't get Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema, this bill's going nowhere.
Republicans tried to work with them on an important infrastructure bill. And if the Democrats won't pass it in the House, where they have complete control, they're the obstructionists. They're the partisans. All right. Uh, that's his perspective. Now I want yours when we come back. one 408 Also, keep in mind as they go to break, go to BrianKillMe.com. Uh, WOKV listeners, very few tickets left for Ponte Vedro, and I'll be there December 3rd. On December 4th, I'll be in Clearwater, Florida. I hope to see everyone there. Uh, then in Orlando, Florida, go check out the dates. On WDBO listeners, pay attention. And people that want to visit, if you know you're going to be in Orlando then. And then I'll be in Charleston, West Virginia. That'll be November 7th, also the day of the special for the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. It's a brand new book that rolls out November 2nd with a special at 10 o'clock at night, November 7th on Fox News. A lot going on. Hope to hear from you right around the bend. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Did our new Taliban treaty include cleaning up graffiti? Yet the only thing generals planned was not offending the Taliban. According to a report, U.S. Marines departing the Kabul airport were told to erase graffiti they'd written insulting ISIS and the Taliban. Now, painting over graffiti that insults the enemy seems like a weird priority, but what do the people who screwed up for 20 years know? It's important not to offend the Taliban or ISIS, especially not ISIS-K, my least favorite breakfast cereal. (laughs) But I can relate wanting to erase graffiti. Someone painted this in the Fox bathroom when the show went five nights a week. (laughs) Kill me rules... Gutfeld drools with a Z. I have no idea who wrote that, but an anonymous source leaked this surveillance footage. Take that, Gutfeld. Yeah, we taped that yesterday afternoon. How'd that go over? I mean, I I watched it not last night, but it it looks good. They they did, you know, it made it look like it was actually surveillance footage of you leaving the bathroom after, you know, writing that. Right. He, he is in uh, Nashville all week. The show wildly successful. A lot of fun. They had Pete Hegseth down there. Now, they originally, they asked us to go down there, right? They did, and you were too cool, or you wanted to just write graffiti in the bathroom instead. Why don't you tell the truth? <laughs> we're doing prime time. I got this show. I can't just go down and be a panelist on another, somebody else's show. But when do you say no to TV normally? Let's be honest. Well, if I'm here, it's a big gym. So yeah. we like to stay active and do chin-ups, pull-ups, and play kickball. All right, so uh, you heard what God, what Greg was talking about. He was talking about Afghanistan, what was happening. Uh, I was just talking about that with uh, Carl Rove, and he was getting emotional. Why? Because it goes back to his legacy. And what did they say yesterday? This wasn't just a failure of how we left. It was a 20-year failure. That involves Carl Rove. That involves President Bush. That involves Tommy Franks. That involves uh, General Petraeus. That involves General, uh, I, you could say, all the generals that we've got a chance to know. You know, we it goes every general that's been down there that was candid or not candid. I am going to take my time and go over the Afghanistan papers, and I want to see what was on, went on. It doesn't smooth over the fact the way we left was so terrible, it's going to forget all the success we had when we were there. And if you just explain to the American people 
we're in a defense posture since 2014. We're going to hold the line, and there's always going to be danger in a place like Afghanistan. But the pluses are there will be right in between all of our enemies, number one. Number two, we'll keep an eye on the terrorists before they can strike again and reconstitute uh, they, uh, they, what happens there. Also, give women uh, by the millions a chance at a decent life where they can actually learn to drive a car, go to school, and have a real relationship. I don't want to judge people's culture, but any culture that decides that women aren't worth educating is not a culture that I think I should learn to accept, nor should you. There's a reason why we're not in medieval times anymore. If we could help a culture move forward, not be like us, but move forward, we should do it. And now the fact that we left people behind is sickening. Not only am I sick about it, not only are past administrations sick about it, what about Democrats? Listen to Senator Richard Blumenthal on MSNBC. Now, I pulled some of his testimony, or at least I read some of the transcript on Monday's show or Tuesday's show. Here's what he said yesterday, Cut 23. There really was no clarity, and with all due respect to the Secretary of Defense, he provided no real responses to my questions because at the moment there aren't responses. There is nobody in charge. Members of the State Department pointed at the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense pointed at the White House. Nobody in charge, and it's a continuing challenge that we need to face because lives are at stake. So he has said he set up almost a clearinghouse. He's gotten so many calls for people in distress that he set up a clearinghouse to help people. Why does he have to do this? A Connecticut congressman, I guess he has military ties because during the Vietnam era, controversially, obviously he said he was in Vietnam. He wasn't, but he served during that time. So he's got all these military connections, so they seem to be working through him. When he asks the Defense Department, he gets vague answers. State Department doesn't get him back to him at all. And uh, we'll play Kat Kamek from yesterday when she's on our show talking about the congressional baseball game. She said, I just came from a very perilous situation where I was trying to get a plane in the air full of refugees that included Americans and American children, and I can't get permission from the State Department to land in JFK. Michael Waltz also dealing with this as a military guy still in the National Guard that served, as you know, WOKV listeners, he handles your district. Ron DeSantis handled it before. Here's Congressman Waltz on what he's dealing with when he came on with me last night on primetime. Cut 24. There are hundreds and thousands of American citizens, green card holders, allies, SIV holders that are still trapped and left behind. So my question is, if we can go anywhere around the world and kill a terrorist, we can go anywhere around the world and go rescue an American, get our people out. That's what their families would expect. Uh, And and, and yet we're seeing this kind of collective shoulder shrug uh, from the administration. All right. So listen, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller is somebody who was as outraged as you are and Michael Waltz was. Uh, just in that clip. So he went ahead and uh, he put a tape together just ripping all those generals. Now they put him in jail. He's in jail. And last night, his lawyer got a 600-plus page indictment of him. They took a lieutenant colonel decorated with multiple, they say, seven tours in Afghanistan alone, I imagine. You can't go to Afghanistan seven times and not Iraq. So Lieutenant Colonel gave up a, a huge career who's staring right at a pension and is so outraged about the lack of accountability of leaving billions of dollars worth of our military hardware, leaving our country, our SIVs and our citizens behind and leaving Afghanistan in such a humiliating fashion. He ripped our generals and they put him in jail. They said, stop doing that. He said, no, they put him in jail. 
we got to rally to this guy's defense. I hope to have his parents on tomorrow on primetime when I host on Friday. Meanwhile, when we come back at a different hour on this show, we'll play some of the clips from the parents. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. This is Brian Kilmeade coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Yes, uh, we are beginning to see something no one's reporting on. The number of cases is going down, deaths under 2,000 around this country. If you look at the map that the New York Times always colors and look at the hot spots, guess what? Florida and Texas are getting quite light, despite what's going on at the border with Texas, with all one out of five people coming across the border sick in some way. And there are 1.5 million who have been here illegally, and we're about to get thousands more. So people don't want to report the good news. How about all those 100,000-plus games from Clemson to Alabama to Florida, uh, the University of Florida? They're selling out their stadiums. Uh, Even Penn State the other day, uh, a couple of weeks in a row. Over 100,000. No big caseloads. Why is that? Maybe we should study success stories. So uh, we have Chris Christie at the bottom of the hour. Chris Wallace now. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Panamanian Foreign Minister Erica Moynez, and she warned that what we just saw at the border, a surge of Haitian migrants coming into the United States largely, is nothing compared to what's coming. As many as 60,000 people are down in Colombia, Peru, and other areas, and she says this next wave is about to hit the United States. Wow, uh, the border breakdown. We told you. You ignored us, and now worse is yet to come. That's the message from the Panamanian Foreign uh, Foreign Affairs official as thousands stream through their jungles en route to our overwhelmed border. Another epic fail from this administration. Number two. On the issue of uh, why we didn't bring out civilians and SIVs sooner, the call on on how to do that and, and, and when to do it is really a, a State Department uh, call. And we certainly would have liked to have seen it go faster. Yeah, that's why we wanted you, Secretary of Defense, with the Secretary of State two weeks ago. Because if you're going to call out the Secretary of State, you might as well do it with him sitting next to you. Afghanistan. The more our generals talk, the more we know President Biden let our nation down. And they were too weak as generals to stop him as he embarrassed our country on the world stage in a way I never thought imaginable. Meanwhile, we have civilians who are scrambling to get the attention of the White House, defense, the State Department, because they want to live and get away from the Taliban. But we are ignoring them. Inexcusable. Number one. There's no world where the infrastructure bill is going to pass today. Um, not only is there not a reconciliation agreement, there's not a framework. There's not, as you guys are talking about, there's not even a number right now from cinema or from Mansion. So, you know, the progressives have held the line on this. Uh, there you go. Uh, spending Palooza, which was supposed to cover President Biden in liberal glory, could be about to go ablaze. The inside story of the Mansion Cinema Squad intramural war in which we can only hope the moderate heads prevail. Now it's time for Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace is the anchor of Fox News Sunday and author of the best-selling book, Countdown Bin Laden, the untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice. Chris, welcome back. Well, it's good to be back, and thank you for giving a plug to the book. We're on the New York Times list for the third straight week, so I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, yeah, it's going to keep going, too. Let me just say, it's a hell of a book. 
you guys, you want to, everybody I know who's read it uh, says it's really a, a, a good thriller. Have you read it yet, Brian? I got through a lot of it, and I'll tell you one thing I got right away out of it is that I yes. had no idea they had a listening device with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to go get bin Laden. So after they do the one-on-one interview and they pretend not to know the courier, he quickly yells to some of his colleagues that are about to be cross-examined, don't say anything about the courier. I had no idea about that. That's right. And that's after he'd been waterboarded 183 times and was in a cl- compliant state and lied his tail off about Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti. And then he goes back to the cell and whispers, uh, don't say anything about the courier. And then he, they know, well, wait a minute. He just told us he wasn't the courier. but And the reason they knew is because they had a listening device from one of these black sites. Yeah, just a lot of the nuances. We know the big picture. We don't know really how it went down. And people want to tell the story to people they trust. And that's why your book works. Chris, uh, just from your perspective, from the two days that you probably had a chance to watch a lot of it, what is the thing that surprised you most from hearing, hearing seeing McKenzie, Millie, and Austin in front of the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee? Well, in terms of the facts, I can't say I am especially surprised. And, and the reason I say that is, I, I mean, Anybody who would talk to anybody in the Pentagon knew that that uh, they had recommended in a meeting in April that the president keep 2,500 troops on the ground in Afghanistan. And what had surprised me, and I don't understand why he did it, because, you know, the president's a commander in chief. He can do whatever he wants, including disregard generals. Uh, when he was talking to George Stephanopoulos in August and said, no, nobody said uh, 2,500 troops that he wasn't telling the truth. So so this is fully what I expected if they were honest that the generals were going to say. Um, you know, look, it was I guess what it is it's a description of a car wreck that we've already seen. Uh, we all knew that this was a mess. We all knew that uh that Biden and his uh, state department people had uh and and the national security team had overruled and disregarded the warnings that came from the Pentagon and and I guess the one thing that is interesting is that it's more open the degree to which they are the people at the Pentagon, particularly Austin and Milley, are saying, hey, look, don't blame us for the, the mess up of the evacuation. That was all in the State Department. We wanted them to take these people out sooner, and they decided not to do it. What I think I am – and we could go over the other parts of it, it's, uh, which I find uh, really interesting uh, and agonizing, but it's not over – we can't get a clear number of how many people we left behind. And certain uh, legislators, certain lawmakers have their offices or have set up almost like clearinghouses to help each one individually with very little help from our Defense Department and our Secretary of State. Listen to Congressman Michael, Michael Waltz yesterday. Cut 21. Panchir has been taken. Frankly, they're being slaughtered right now as we speak with our weapons, with our damn equipment. Our allies are being slaughtered. Every morning we wake up to beheading videos, to executions, to people being hunted down with our own database. And he has trying now dealing with an 80-year-old American couple and trying to get them out. He says, I got all these individual stories, and I know him personally. And he said he got married and told his wife, we can't go on a honeymoon. They almost canceled the wedding because they have so many individual uh, SIVs and Americans with green cards that they're helping, and they're getting no cooperation. That, to me, is unacceptable, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, the whole evacuation, the execution of the evacuation has been unacceptable. It's been an embarrassment. I think it's going to 
tremendously damage us with both our allies and our adversaries because it doesn't show us as being serious uh, and, and keeping our word. You know, I mean, we, we had a kind of moral commitment to uh, our Afghan allies in particular, the, the, the people who risked their lives to stand up and support the U.S. against the Taliban. Now we've left them to the not so tender mercies of the Taliban. And, I, you know, I, I, had, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen, but I don't go looking for beheading videos. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a shame. It's a, it's a stain on our honor. So today, on a on a local level, we're going to find out about the Biden domestic agenda, at least leading up to the midterms. This is the biggest week he's had. We don't know how long it's going to extend. Why? Two separate spending bills. Obviously, just for everyone to review, the $1.2 trillion that the Senate passed with 19 Republican votes. And then there's the 3.5, which no one thinks is 3.5 anymore. A lot of and the people do the math. It's over four. But also, they don't think they're going to green light that at all. So, short story. The liberals say, if less you guarantee, give me a framework for the three point five trillion, I'm not going to vote for the bipartisan deal. And Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, and others are not budging. They are not going to go for this three point five. It doesn't seem that the one-on-one meetings with President Biden have done anything. Uh, here is uh, here's a uh, Bernie Sanders weighing in on what's going to happen to the infrastructure bills. Cut five. Mr. Manchin is concerned about the national debt. He's right. So am I. But I trust that he understands that this reconciliation bill will be fully paid for by asking the wealthiest people in this country and the largest corporations to start paying their fair share of taxes. So if you're concerned about the debt, that is not should not be an issue in this bill. I feel better now. Do you? Yeah, that that reassures me almost as much as Joe Biden saying. The price tag for this is zero. It's yeah. going to cost zero. <laughs> I, that was what that's I, You know, I've heard I've been in Washington 40 years. Yeah. I've heard a lot of spin, a lot of uh, dubious selling points. But to say that a three and a half trillion dollar bill is going to cost zero because we're going to tax people. You know, that's sort of like saying, well, if, if I pay for it by credit card as opposed to in pure cash, it costs zero. It still costs what it costs. It's just how you're going to pay for it. Um, I would, the only thing I would say as somebody who has been around Washington a long time, I think there's a real possibility of a train wreck today in the sense that they're going to pass government funding. The government will not uh, shut down tomorrow because that would just be insane. But in terms of the infrastructure, you know, I don't know. But my guess is it probably isn't going to pass today. And Which there's going to be a lot of stories. The, the infrastructure. The 1.2. The, the, yeah, yeah the, the, the hard infrastructure. I'm not – look. Don't call the three and a half trillion dollars infrastructure. It isn't. It's a tax and spend bill. It's not infrastructure. Infrastructure is roads and highways and that stuff. Social infrastructure is another sort of made up phrase that that, you know, is 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 being done to sell things. But I I think it probably more likely than not will not pass today. And a lot of people are going to say it's dead and Biden's domestic agenda is dead. Don't don't fall for that. I'm not saying that that it's going to get through. But. You know, sometimes things have to fail before they pass and you have to fall off the cliff before you realize, man, I need to be on solid ground. So uh, I think it's going to have the president and uh, Pelosi and Schumer are going to have a bad day today. But I don't think that means it's curtains. It may still it may still be revived. May not definitely. But but can I just say one thing about this infrastructure, the hard infrastructure, the one point two billion. The biggest mistake the Democrats made was when it passed the Senate. And you said, what is it, 18 or 19 Republican votes? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it had. I think it was like sixty-eight or sixty-nine to whatever. They should have taken it to the House and that week passed it because it was a real bipartisan move. They would have gotten a lot of Republican buy-in. They could have had a signing ceremony in August in the Rose Garden. How much better would would Biden look if he had had a bipartisan domestic win? And now. He's being held up in this game of chicken between the mansions of the world and the AOCs of the world, neither of whom really care about Biden. They care about themselves. Uh, this, this is a mess, and it's totally self-inflicted. True. Here is AOC. Cut eight. Ninety-six percent, myself included, of the Democratic Party is, uh, is in agreement that we need to pass both bills. He said he's still negotiating in good faith to get there. Let's stick to the original plan. I will support Manchin's priorities, he can support my priorities, and we can all win. And working families need child care, health care, climate action, and infrastructure investment. Seems simple. Well, that, that, makes, that makes me feel better, too. I mean, the problem is Manchin's priorities and AOC's priorities are dramatically different. On the bipartisan bill, not so much, but on the, on the huge tax and spending bill, uh, tremendously. Biden, uh, Manchin doesn't want to spend... Uh, anywhere near three and a half. He probably wants to spend less south of $2 trillion, which is still, I love the fact that $2 trillion is like, well, that, come on, that's a huge, that's nothing. I mean, that's like one of the biggest spending bills in history. When we had the stimulus, remember when we had the Great Recession in, yeah. in uh, 2009 and they had the stimulus bill, the one thing they said is it can't be a trillion dollars. I think it ended up being $780 billion. And it was like, well, you can't go to a trillion because that's just a red line. And now we're saying, well, let's cut it dramatically to $2 trillion. That is still a lot of money. So I want to bring you to the border. This is Glenn yes, Johnson of Axios. It turns out another, I think, more concerning a disorganization within this administration. What's happened at the border? Why aren't we predicting? Where's the surge coming from? What? What are people? Why are people coming now? It was too hot, uh, and they're not. It was supposed to dip, and instead it increased. And we're looking at 1.5 trillion. Excuse me, 1.5 million illegals that have come here already this year, and then all of a sudden, our drone team deserves all the credit for spotting uh, uh, tens of thousands of most of which were Haitian uh, immigrants under a bridge in Texas. And they said, where are these people coming from? Glenn Johnson talked to the foreign minister of Panama. Listen to what he said. Cut 33. Steph Kite had an interview with the Panamanian foreign minister, Erica Moynez, and she warned that what we just saw at the border, a surge of Haitian migrants coming into the United States largely, is nothing compared to what's coming. As many as 60,000 people are down in Colombia, Peru, and other areas, some already making their way through the dangerous Darien Gap in Panama. And she says this next wave is about to hit the United States. And he said that we've been telling the U.S. that this was happening and we've gotten no response. That, is, to me, is just shows this administration's are not firing, firing, uh, firing on any cylinders. Final thought? No, I, I, I completely agree. The, you know, I, I think... The reason that we talk so much about Del Rio is it just crystallized for a lot of people uh, the problem. You know, when you when you don't see just few people straggling over, look, it's been a crisis for a long time. And I've been calling it a crisis despite the Biden White House saying, you know, it's not a crisis. But when you saw 15,000 people in one place in horrible conditions under that bridge and, you know, the stream of people, hundreds, thousands coming across that dam into Del Rio, it, it crystallized it. 
I'll tell you there's one answer, and the answer is if they come up, first of all, they shouldn't let them in. They should find a way to block them, like a wall. I talked about this with Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas on Sunday. But in addition, if you're going to deport them, deport them to Haiti. That's the last place they want to go. These guys left Haiti. They've been in in, uh, South America or Central America. They don't want to go back to Haiti. If you started saying to Haitians coming across the border, you're not going to be just turned around and sent back to Mexico. You're going to go back to Haiti and then have to figure your way out of there again. They will give up on that. You, you could be a border czar if you wanted to I could to be. be a border czar. That would be huh? great. Just get planes, get the C-130s, and take them to Haiti. Wallace in charge. Chris, uh, uh, we'll look forward to watching on Fox News Sunday. You bet. And hopefully by then we'll have some clarity on where this budget train wreck is headed. And control of the border. Thanks, Chris Wallace. Appreciate it. We come back. Your turn, 1-866-408-7669. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, we're going to be going to Governor Chris Christie. He's doing a lot of work with Republican leaders to try to get back the House. And I think cue himself up what I believe is going to be another presidential run. Uh, now we talked to him last night on primetime. He's going to be joining us shortly. Also, I think it's uh, some explaining to do because when he hopped on the board of the Mets, he told me it was not a coincidence that the Mets were in first place for four or five months. Now that they're under 500 and been out of the fray for at least 10, week, 10 days, uh, does he take the blame? Will he actually take the blame for the Mets' demise? And who would you hire as uh, general manager? Most people are focused uh, on the Yankees in New York, I would have to say that. So we're waiting to see if a vote will take place. Nancy Pelosi will find out if we're going to put the bipartisan bill uh, up for a vote today. She'll only do it if it'll pass. Then... We're also going to wait to find out what is going to be happening with the other reconciliation bill that could be over $3 trillion. And on the backside, we're continuing to find out uh, if the President of the United States is going to speak to the press at all about his myriad of uh, topics, including his poll numbers. His approval is now down to 42%. His approval with the pandemic is now under just about 50%. And going south, especially with this booster demand and this mandate mania, It's costing telling thousands you are fired just because you don't want to get the shot. Many have this thing called natural immunity, including NBA players. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The progressive votes will not be there. Kevin McCarthy has said he will not let any Republicans vote for this unless Nancy Pelosi already has 218 votes. So 
She didn't have the votes. Now, can she bring it to the floor? Of course she can bring it to the floor and have it go down. And we've seen she's always been loath to do that. But, you know, speakers in the past have sometimes brought a bill to the floor to teach people a lesson and to say, you know, Nancy Pelosi promised the moderates that she would bring this infrastructure bill to a vote this week. She could make good on her promise, see it go down, and then turn to them and say, see, guys, this is what happens if we don't have the progressives on board. You can demand all the votes you want on infrastructure, but they're not going to ever pass. So she could do that as an object lesson. If we went by Nancy Pelosi's history, she will have to pull this thing down by the end of the day because, again, it's just not going to happen. And almost nobody thinks it's going to happen, but you never know because the Democrats control everybody in Washington. Uh, not everybody, but every administrative body in Washington, branch of government. But the the advantages are small. Chris Christie knows that, former governor of New Jersey. Uh, governor, welcome back. Happy to be back, Brian. Can you give me an idea of the play-by-play on this? How do you think this is going to pan out? You know, they say that Joe Biden's an old-school Democrat, and he says that Democrats in the end of the day will don't want to embarrass their Democratic president. Has that day come and gone, or does they still feel the same way? Well, I don't think that the AOC-type folks, the, the, the way-out progressives, they, they, they're not going to worry about that because they didn't want Joe Biden to be president in the first place. They wanted Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. I don't think they think, even despite everything Biden has done already, that he's a, he's a true progressive. And so they're, I don't think they're going to be worried about embarrassing him. Um, and, and I think Joe Manchin's position on all this is, I gave you the vote on the $1.9 trillion COVID package at the beginning, which I didn't love. Um, you can't keep coming back to me and saying, well, you can't embarrass the president because I'm not going to vote for this three and a half trillion dollar bill. So, you know, I think Biden's in a real in a real spot here. And I think he's got to lean on the progressives because he's already leaned on Manchin and gotten Manchin to support a covid package that was wildly overpriced and with money that's just sitting around at this moment, not even being utilized. So uh, I don't think you can go back to the, the, the Joe Manchin. Well, so that means he's got to get Pelosi to push her progressives to support what he wants to support. Otherwise, Nothing's going to get done. Uh, and, and if it does get, I mean, if things go down today, remember how devastated the Republicans were when John McCain walked out and gave thumbs down on the skinny, the skinny substitute for Obamacare. Will this be the same? It, it, it will be like kind of a, a rolling dumpster fire. That happened all at once with McCain because I think the Democrats are not going to give up and they're going to continue to go back to the well. So it'll be it'll be the first step in what will be, I think, a multi-step failure unless they uh, accommodate Joe Manchin this time and significantly reduce the three and a half trillion dollar package. And to do that, they're going to have to get the progressives on board um, at a much smaller package. I mean, you could see Nancy Pelosi yesterday, you know, just flat out lying um, when she said that the package was going to cost nothing, zero dollars, you know. She thinks that Joe Manchin, who's been a two-term governor and now in his second term in the United States Senate, is going to buy that malarkey. Um, she's got another thing coming. So uh, they're desperate. They're reaching. Um, but they've got to get their own far left wing under control. The far left wing of the Democratic Party, Brian, is is killing the Democratic Party um, with uh, most of the country. Do you feel, does this remind you of what some said the Tea Party was doing to John Boehner? Well, there is some there are some similarities to that, although um, the Tea Party was consistent, Brian, with with Republican uh, Republican principles. 
They wanted lower taxes. They wanted less government. The progressives are trying to take the Democratic Party to a place that uh, only socialism has been. Uh, and that's never been the way it's worked, even in the Democratic Party. Um, so I think it's, there's some similarities, but the bigger difference is these folks are much, much further out of the mainstream than the Tea Party ever was. So we'll see where that goes. Some, some disturbing poll numbers if you're Joe Biden. I know you've digested. I know think one of your functions is to try to get uh, the House and maybe the Senate back for, uh, for your party. When it comes to Joe Biden's approval rating, it's around 42 percent. The guy had it at 58 percent uh, a short time ago, but it's fallen like a rock. And I don't really think that it's possible to to overstate the panic that must be going on. If you look at individual states, he's now got just over 30 percent approval in Texas. Same thing over in Iowa. Yeah. Was he supposed to win those states? No. But this type of drop, not effective, especially if you're trying to get a Democrat and win some of these districts. Response to the coronavirus still got 57 percent. The, on the border, 33 percent. On the economy, 51 percent, which is stunning. Uh, gun violence, 38 percent. Crime, 43 percent. Afghanistan, 38 uh, percent. So this is where he stands right now. And the thing, if he if he gets this go down, it's going to hurt his economic numbers. And his numbers as a conciliator are going to go down, too, because nothing is getting done. Yeah, you're, listen, I think your analysis is exactly right, Brian. Um, right now, what's driving his numbers are two things, the humanitarian disaster at the border um, and uh, the Afghanistan debacle where we lost 13 servicemen and women and sub Americans over there essentially being held captive. Um, and he left them there. So, you know, th- those are the two big problems that are driving him now. And you're right. If his economic package doesn't go through, those numbers are going to bleed more. And guess who they're going to bleed from? They're going to bleed from Democrats. Progressive Democrats are going to say, you didn't get the job done. We were suspicious of you all along. We never really liked you. And now, you know, we don't like you uh, even more. Talk to, uh, so yeah. that's, that's going to really, really hurt him. And those numbers could go down into the 30s. So if you're going to, you know, if somebody wins in a Republican, okay, that we can learn from that. But so if Young, the fact that Youngkin is within single digits of McAuliffe, who was already governor of New Jersey. And then he had that big uh, mistake. I believe he might not believe it, a mistake when he said, when it comes to education, parents should not have a role in their education. They should stay out of it. And that's a state that gave us Loudoun County and the uproar and had boards of education being, uh, being re- uh, uh, board of uh, the, these board members being recalled because of what's in the curriculum do you believe there's something to learn from even a close finish in Virginia? Oh, well, sure. I mean, look, education should be one of the biggest issues Republicans should be talking about right now. We should be talking about how we need to have an educational system which tells our, you know, our students the truth. Um, and the truth is that America has been a great country, not a perfect country, but a great country and the greatest country the world's ever seen. And we need to be talking about those things. So I think and I will tell you this with. 30 days to go till Election Day now, just about, um, I think you're seeing a, a margin of error race in Virginia, where I think Glenn Youngkin very well could win that race. Um, and in New Jersey, it is a single-digit race in New Jersey. And, you know, Phil Murphy had a bad, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey had a bad debate night on Tuesday night against Jack Cittarelli. Jack's closest thing to single digits. And uh, it's going to be a very interesting last 30 days because 
I think there are lots of independents around the country, and now particularly in New Jersey and Virginia, who may just want to send Joe Biden and the Democrats in Washington a message and do it through Terry McAuliffe and Phil Murphy. So, and as I mentioned last night, I think it's fascinating, too, with Governor, uh, with Youngkin, he was, uh, Donald Trump basically said, be smart about it, embrace me, and I'll endorse you. And he said, well, I, uh, I like Donald Trump, but I also want to be somebody that unites anti-Trumpers, too. In a state like that, that's not Alabama or, to a degree, Florida or Texas that truly embraces Trump, is there a way to do it? He's a friend of yours where you don't necessarily get the endorsement, run on the Trump agenda, but don't run on the anti-Trump agenda. It's not really been done before. No, look, it was hard to do it when, when Donald Trump was president. He's not president anymore. And so, you know, Glenn Youngkin is being himself. And, you know, um, Brian, I think what's most important in a candidate is for them to be authentic. And so if Glenn Youngkin all of a sudden started to fully embrace Donald Trump and his agenda completely, uh, people would know that that was inauthentic because he's had other things to say over the course of his his public career that are contrary to that. Um, And on the other hand, if you were to go completely anti-Trump because he thought that was what was necessary in Virginia, people wouldn't believe that either because – he agrees with a lot of the president's policies. I think in the advice I've given to Glenn is be authentic, be yourself, say what you really believe. And, you know, let's face it, Brian. I mean, the, President Trump was out there in Georgia this past weekend saying that Stacey Abrams would be a better governor than Brian Kemp. Now, I'm sorry. You know, that's just wrong. It's bad for the party. It's bad for the state of Georgia and the people of Georgia. Do is does anyone really think that the people of the state of Georgia would be better off if Stacey Abrams were the governor of Georgia with her agenda. So I think we all have to keep our eye on the ball here, which is winning elections. When Republicans win, the country will be better. And all of us have to keep that eye on that ball, not just Glenn Youngkin, but President Trump also. Especially in Georgia, where we just watched two Senate seats go by the boards, and it's really changing the country perhaps for generations, especially if they find a way to pass this ridiculous two-point uh, $3.5 trillion bill, which is really $5 trillion. So yep. in Georgia, you guys, if you want to be successful, and Herschel Walker or whoever is going to get that Senate seat, you guys got to find a way to not divide. And if you are dividing with Governor Kemp in Georgia, that could be the difference to put Stacey Abrams in that seat. So you were taken aback by that comment? I was totally taken aback by that comment. Brian Kemp has been a good conservative governor of Georgia. And let's look at the Georgia voting bill that he got passed and signed, which is going to make Georgia elections in the future even more secure um, and more reliable. And he got that done. The the economy in Georgia, he did not shut down in the severe way that lots of other Democratic governors did for COVID. Think about what the Georgia economy would look like if Stacey Abrams had won the last race. It would look like New York or New Jersey or Connecticut or California which are economic disasters. So to say that Brian Kemp would not be as good a governor, that's, listen, that's grievance politics, Brian. We know what that is. That's personal. It's grievance politics. It's looking backwards at 2020, and it's wrong. And it's bad for the people of Georgia. Let's put everything else aside. You know, Donald Trump doesn't have to like Brian Kemp. But objectively, anyone who looks at it from a Republican perspective knows that Brian Kemp is a much better governor than Stacey Abrams 
or hope to be for the people of Georgia. And that's what we should be thinking about as leaders. The one thing about Stacey Abrams, extremely talented, smart, organized, and driven. And she will hold on to Georgia forever uh, if uh, and the change undo those laws if she gets in there. And they weren't to isolate or hurt any community. It was to, uh, I think, to secure the election, not hurt the turnout for election. That is my view. And I got to ask. It's going to help turnout, Brian. It's going to help turnout. There's more days of early voting. There's permanent drop boxes. There's mail-in ballots for anyone who wants them. It will increase turnout, but it will also increase integrity and security. And those are both things that everybody, no matter what party you're in, should care about. So Herschel Walker, extremely talented, likable. We know what kind of athlete he is, and we know he's got a great, uh, you know, his charisma is undeniable. Do you believe he's the best candidate for that Senate seat? Well, he's certainly the best candidate in the race now. We have to see whether anyone else enters the race. Um, and then make that evaluation then. But certainly, if her, I know Herschel, um, and, if, and if Herschel was the nominee of the Republican Party, um, I would certainly support him um, by, a, by a mile over Raphael Warnock, who is just going down there and being a rubber stamp for Chuck Schumer and not representing the interests or the opinions of the people of Georgia. But let's see who else gets in the race um, before we make a final decision on that. It is only September of 21. For a no, you know, for a spring twenty-two primary. So let's take a look at who else is in. But I like Herschel. I think Herschel is a very good guy, um, and I think he could represent Georgia much better than Raphael Warnock. And Governor, if you're going to get in, when do you have to make that decision? Look, I think it's after the midterms. Um, you make a decision about whether to run for president or not. I don't think anybody should allow themselves to be distracted between now and then on, in winning as many governorships as we can, winning back the House of Representatives and winning back the Senate so we can stop this. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Did he offer to allow you to have security over all of Kabul? As part of that conversation, he said, why don't you just take security for all of Kabul? That was not why I was there. That That was not my instruction. And we did not have the resources to undertake that mission. Who made the... Uh, the decision to turn down the Taliban offer to allow the U.S. military to secure Kabul and put the safety of our troops in the hands of the Taliban. I did not consider that to be a formal offer, and it was not the reason why I was there, so I did not pursue it. That is crazy to me. General Kenneth McKenzie saying, well, he had a different explanation, if I remember correctly. When this story first popped up in one of the Washington newspapers, he said, General McKenzie said he got a call from Berard the Butcher, who was he was dealing with in Doha, or the administration was uh, the previous and the next generation were dealing with in Doha, saying, you know, we're in the cusp of Kabul. I know you don't want to, we're not supposed to take Kabul, but the ministries are empty. What do you want to happen here? He said, do you want to secure it or should we secure it? And he said, I only want the airport. And then his explanation was, uh, well, we didn't have enough forces. Well, you just told us in 10 days you got 5,600 there. What makes you think you couldn't get another 5,000? Number two, they obviously, if they, you told them not to attack the airport and you trusted them, you told them to stay out of Kabul, they probably would have. And you originally intended to keep enough force to watch the embassy. Maybe you wouldn't have had to strip the embassy and move it to the airport. And we know what the heck is left in the embassy. 
if this happened. But he said, I didn't have to check with the president because I knew the president's intent. I mean, I just can't believe how inadequate these generals are and how bad their explanations were and how unmotivated they are to get everybody out. But they are motivated to take down a lieutenant colonel who spoke up about how inept they were. Uh, this is Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com. Find out when I'm going to go on stage for the President of Freedom Fighter Tour. Uh, briankilmeade.com. Get tickets there. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's going to be a big hour. Jonathan Turley will be with us at the bottom of the hour, law professor at George Washington uh, University. All these lawsuits against what's happening at the border by other governors. Will he be successful? The attorney general of West Virginia, the governor of Florida, all suing because everything that's flooding across the border, including people and fentanyl, is hurting their state. And the president uh, is representing the federal government is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Trey Yinks will be joining us in a matter of seconds uh, from Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, he is doing the hard work there. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Panamanian Foreign Minister Erica Moynez, and she warned that what we just saw at the border, a surge of Haitian migrants coming into the United States largely, is nothing compared to what's coming. As many as 60,000 people are down in Colombia, Peru, and other areas, and she says this next wave is about to hit the United States. Yep, border breakdown. We told you, uh, you told you, and you ignored us. Now the worst is yet to come. That's the message from Panama officials as thousands have streaming across through the jungles en route to our overwhelmed border. He mentioned this before. The Biden administration ignored it. And now tens of thousands are coming. Number two. On the issue of uh, why we didn't bring out civilians and SIVs sooner, the call on, on how to do that and, and, and when to do it is really a, a State Department uh, call. And we certainly would have liked to have seen it go faster. Afghanistan. The more our generals talk, the more we know President Biden let our nation down and they were too weak as generals to stop him as he embarrassed the country on the world stage in a, in a way I didn't think was imaginable in my lifetime. Meanwhile, as civilians are scrambling to help out SIVs, American citizens caught in Afghanistan because the State Department and Defense Department don't seem to be motivated to do a thing. Number one. There's no world where the infrastructure bill is going to pass today. Um, not only is there not a reconciliation agreement, there's not a framework. There's not, as you guys are talking about, there's not even a number right now from Cinema or from Mansion. So, you know, the progressives have held the line on this. Spending Palooza, which was supposed to cover President Biden in liberal glory, could be about to go ablaze. We're watching the speaker's press conference now. The inside story of the Mansion Cinema Squad intramural war in which we can only hope moderate heads will prevail. So with me right now from uh, uh, from Afghanistan, excuse me, from New York City, no, from Kabul, Afghanistan, uh, Trey Yanks joins us now. Hey, Trey. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thought he was there trying to get him. Yeah, we're going to get him up in a second. Trey Yanks is in Kabul. He's our Fox News foreign affairs correspondent. And we want to get the real story. I'm hearing these stories that people are getting so panicky. Uh, here is Trey. Uh, Trey, you can hear me? Yep, I got you. 
Gotcha. Trey, uh, give us an idea of, uh, of what's happening in Kabul. Yeah, so right now in Kabul, the security situation is not great. The Taliban is in control, so they have to monitor everything coming in and out of the country, everyone operating inside the country. And right now that includes thousands of ISIS-K members and other extremists who are able to now roam freely through Afghanistan. And it's a big problem, not just for the Afghan civilians who are caught and left behind, but especially those special immigrant visa holders and anyone who worked with the United States over the past 20 years. They are considered targets not only by the Taliban but also other extremist factions here, and it's quite a dangerous situation for them. Uh, So right now, as compared to even two weeks ago, do you think the danger is upgraded? The danger is definitely upgraded in terms of ISIS-K threats. We've seen numerous ISIS-K threats and attacks, actually, against the Taliban. Now that American forces and foreign troops are out of the country, the new sort of internal war that's emerging is between the Taliban and ISIS-K. So in the city of Jalalabad, just east of Kabul, the capital, there have been ID attacks and shootings targeting Taliban members and also killing civilians. And I think that's the major concern even for us as we operate here. We're not so worried about the Taliban. There are some extremist factions like the Haqqani Network and others inside the Taliban that could raise some flags and concern for journalists operating here. But the major threat is definitely ISIS. What about the Afghan forces? Are they a presence, the former Afghan forces with Ghani's regime? Uh, They're not. You see very few people who self-identify as working for the Afghan government or Afghan military previously, and it's mainly because those who could get out of the country during that period following the Taliban takeover, they did, and those who didn't are basically in hiding. They're keeping a very low profile, and those that we do meet keep it very hush-hush, even if you come in conversation with them and, and they talk about their time working for the government or the military before the Taliban, they certainly don't want to be found out by those fighters who are now operating throughout the country. So they basically try to keep the lowest profile possible. And we do know many of the top generals and people who actually held positions within the Afghan security forces, they've basically gone underground if they are still in the country because they don't want to be identified by the Taliban. Is there still any relations, diplomatic relations between the U.S. or NATO allies and the Taliban government where they could get people out if they choose? and Or is there a risk once you identify who you want out, they could also be targeted? Yeah, it's a, a really tricky and, and delicate situation for the Americans and anyone else trying to operate with the Taliban because the way the U.S. withdrawal happened basically gave the Taliban all of the leverage. So now those American citizens and legal permanent residents and special immigrant visa holders have to rely on the word of the Taliban to safely get out of the country. And I think when we talk about the communication between the Taliban and the U.S. State Department, for example, it's certainly happening, even if it's through third parties like the Qataris or the Turks. But I think the thing to remember here is that you have all of these American citizens, green card holders, and U.S. allies still in the country. And basically, they don't know if they're going to be able to make it out. And the State Department continues to give out this number of 100 people. Just a few days ago, a senior State Department official in Washington said there were around 100 U.S. citizens and special uh, – excuse me, there were 100 U.S. citizens and green card holders still in Afghanistan. And we immediately started reporting based on our own knowledge and the people that we had talked to here on the ground in Afghanistan to say this – isn't true. There's no way it's accurate. Just a day later, a plane took off with 130 people 
who were citizens and green card holders. So it gives you a sense of how far off the numbers we're getting out of Washington are when it comes to the people still stuck here in Kabul and across Afghanistan. So here's what Congressman Michael Waltz is in constant contact, too. I don't know if you've been in touch with him. Cut 24. There are hundreds and thousands of American citizens, green card holders, allies, SIV holders that are still trapped and left behind. So my question is, if we can go anywhere around the world and kill a terrorist, we can go anywhere around the world and go rescue an American. Get our people out. That's what their families would expect. Uh, and, and, and yet we're seeing this kind of collective shoulder shrug uh, from the administration. That's the frustration I heard on both sides of the aisle over the last two days. I don't know if you were able to watch any of the hearings where you're at, but is he right? He's absolutely right that there are thousands of American allies, special immigrant visa holders, and even legal permanent residents left behind. There's certainly a handful of American citizens still here, and each case is different, but I think the conversations that we have in the streets of Kabul really highlight what happened here and and who is being left behind. I'll give you one example. We came across a group of people and we were talking to them very close to a hotel that's being used as a staging ground to get people out on these evacuation flights. And suddenly it became clear that these individuals had worked for the Americans. They actually worked inside the embassy. Some of them were translators, security guards, cooks. And the disappointment on their faces whenever I had to explain to them that, yes, I am American, but no, I cannot help them. It was, it was heartbreaking to watch because they were so excited for a brief moment because they had tried so hard with, with resources, money, contacts, everything that they could throw at the U.S. State Department, at any contact they had in the United States to say, hey, look, you left us behind. And I, I had to explain to them, I, I can't help you. I can tell your story, but I can't get you out of Afghanistan. And we actually came across one of those embassy workers. He was a, a cook, and he actually appeared on Fox News Channel. We interviewed him as, as part of our story, and he showed me pictures with embassy personnel, people who are now still working in the Biden administration. And he said, look, we were here. We were helping them. We were serving them food. We were proud to work for the Americans for years, and they promised us safe passage out of Afghanistan, and we're still here. And now no one is responding to their emails, their calls, their texts. And I think that one man is, is such a great example of the hundreds of, of stories that we've heard here in Kabul. And that same man emailed me yesterday, and the subject line read, help me. And inside he said, basically, save, save me, save my family. We will be targeted for working with the Americans. And his story is not unique, Brian. It must be killing you. Uh, try to report the story and not get involved in the story. Trey Yinks talking to us from Kabul. Uh, Trey, a couple other things. You know, as we try to put together what went on here, I'm wondering the original plan, according to Secretary of Defense Austin, was to hold on to the embassy. Why didn't they? Would it have been possible or would that have been just a target? Look, I think it certainly would have been possible. The reflection and and the analysis when we're looking at this story – I think most people are not so focused on if the United States should have pulled out of Afghanistan. It's really how it was done and the steps that were taken and the timing of all of this, right? There were a number of things that went wrong that looking back, hindsight is, is certainly twenty twenty. but on a very surface level, even the average consumer of news, someone who was following this story for a few months could have understood that withdrawing troops in the middle of the Taliban's fighting season, probably not a smart move. 
They could have waited until the winter when actually many of the fighters go into Pakistan or, or basically yeah. are in the mountains, not out on offensives. Another question, why did Bagram Air Base – why was it Bagram Air Base abandoned, right? This was a, a strategic location that the United States could have held. They didn't necessarily have to move the evacuations there. They could have still evacuated people from Kabul's airport, but it would have given them the aerial support to ensure that the Taliban offensive didn't move forward so quickly and that the Afghan security forces actually had a fighting chance. So those are, are two major questions. When it comes to the embassy – the reporting that we're seeing this week is, is quite interesting, actually. There is, is fresh reporting indicating the Taliban was actually open to this idea to allow the Americans to keep some security presence on the ground as this all drew down. And it's kind of, I think, baffling why these steps were taken because looking back, you hear these, these top military leaders in Washington testifying before lawmakers on Capitol Hill, and it appears that there was some disconnect between the recommendations of the U.S. military and these officials who oftentimes served on the ground or at least were talking to the, the generals and the commanders on the ground and then the political decisions that were made at the White House. And I think that disconnect is the thing that is going to be studied for months and years to come. Why did the Biden administration not take the advice of these top generals who were formulating their advice based off of their own experience and, and the realities on the ground. And I think that's that's the big question that people will look at for the time being. And I think let, let's hear that. This is General McKenzie getting this question from Congressman Gallagher. But did you get an offer from the Taliban to cold cobble or not? Cut 20. Did he as offer part, to allow you to have security over all of Kabul? Not as security. part of that conversation, he said, well, why don't you just take security for all of Kabul? That was not why I was there. That was not that was not my instruction. And we did not have the resources to undertake that mission. Who made the uh, the decision to turn down the Taliban offer to allow the U.S. military to secure Kabul and put the safety of our troops in the hands of the Taliban? I did not consider that to be a formal offer, and it was not the reason why I was there. So I did not pursue it. I mean, to, there, does anyone have any logic and then think of the alternative? The alternative was we'll hold the airport and have the Taliban do our security. That was a better plan, Trey? I mean, it was interesting, the timing of it all, right? U.S. troops left and then had to go back in to help with the evacuation. 5,000. Like, the Americans surged troops back into Kabul to help evacuate the civilians and the embassy personnel left behind. So it raises the question, why didn't American civilians and embassy personnel get out before U.S. troops left when the presence was there on the ground? And the communication, clearly, according to General McKenzie, was happening with the Taliban. And look, there is a, a, a logic path to, to explore. OK, you can't trust what the Taliban says. That's pretty clear. They have not made, made good on their promises from the Doha Agreement. The conversations that started under the Trump administration and then continued into the Biden administration, and I think that it's it's fair to to raise the the point mm-hmm. and, and and understand that U.S. officials may have have been weary of what the Taliban was saying, but you do have to consider this is a group that is now controlling the entirety of Afghanistan. Yep. When these conversations were happening, they had already made clear progress across the country, and it was becoming very very relevant to have to talk to this group. And make decisions based off that. So I think those are questions that that opinion hosts and, and lawmakers will look at and they'll explore and they'll and they'll analyze. But there's certainly valid questions to ask amid this story. Trey, you're doing a great job. We always appreciate your insight. So does our audience, uh, because to get to get somebody on the inside rather than people on the outside 
uh, prospecting about what's actually happening is just invaluable. Trey Yinks, thanks. Thank you. You got it. Uh, listen, we're going to take a, a step aside for a second, take some calls. Jonathan Turley at the bottom of the arrow, one 408 we're also seeing Joe Manchin speaking right now. Nancy Pelosi spoke a short time ago about these two bills that are moving or stalled. Something's happening on Capitol Hill today. Honest commentary, unique opinions, no agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Over 95% of my caucus supports the 3.5. As a week and a half ago, it was all systems go, 3.5, the president, the leader in the Senate. So we're having to compress a lot of our discussion here. But I can't say anything to them until I have, we have an agreement. When I say I, I mean the president, the Senate, we have to have an agreement together. I think that the, that the path we are on is leading to that agreement. Yes, ma'am. Will that happen before the end of the day? That is the plan. Are you committed to having a vote on infrastructure today? Yes. Regardless of whether you have the votes or I intend to. I don't. We're on a path to win the vote. I don't want to even consider any options other than that. That's just the way it is. And that's, that's our culture. You don't understand that culture. You don't understand that culture. But that's our culture. We go in it to win it. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but you got to negotiate, and you go to negotiate, and you go in to win it. But if ever, if one side wins, the other side loses. That's not a negotiation, I don't believe. So Joe Manchin, who is the man of the hour always in this fifty-fifty Senate, just said this about the ongoing talks. You have a good piece of legislation. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Take this one. Let's sit down and work what we can through the others and get where we can get. Senator, get what we can get Senator done. Manchin, Democrats just say they need a bottom line from you. They, they just need they, a number. Why can't you just give them a number? We're going to give them basically the needs that we have. Okay, they ought to be able to take that. We're in different places, but we want something to be done. We both want to help the people in need. We should be targeting our children on the front end, our seniors on the back end. Basically, a tax code. We all agree that we voted against a 2017 tax repeal or tax cuts. We voted against that. Don't you think that would be the uniting part to start to fix the tax code? Yeah, uh, that would be, you know, a disunifying force within Republicans. They were great pride in it, and the economy was roaring because of it. He felt as though the rich benefited because of it. But we've also had Kevin Brady on here over and over again talking about the Trump uh, tax plan and saying that is such a mischaracterization of what it is. He almost voted for it, by the way. Here is more from, from Joe Manchin. The reason I asked for a pause, I'm still concerned about inflation. I'm still concerned. Right now, the dollar store, I don't know if you saw that today, breaking news on that, the dollar store is not, not going to be the dollar anymore. It's going to be a dollar and a quarter, a dollar fifty. Yeah, that's very emblematic of what's happening in our country. But he, you don't need Joe Manchin to say that. You know that. You want shopping for an overcoat or anything. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We have people from over 100 nationalities 
that are making their way to Mexico, making their way to the southern border, because Biden's made it clear, if you just get here, we'll put you on a bus, we'll put you on the plane, we'll send you all over the fruited plain. So we have Americans having a hell of a time getting out of Afghanistan, and yet if you just come illegally, you basically get put on your way to communities all across the country. It's a choice that they're making. This is intentional. And if our lawsuit succeeds and they have to end, catch, and release, you know, they may be forced to actually do the right thing for a change. And right now they're just not. They're letting most people out. Although Chris Wallace had a great point earlier in the show. He said, if you, if these Haitians come across and they're crossing illegally, send them back to Haiti. I don't care where they were before. The minute the word gets out that you're going back to Haiti, a country that you evidently left in 2010 after one of the catastrophic natural occurrences or their horrible uh, uh, political system. If you're over there in Bolivia, hanging out in Brazil and decide you want to come to America, you go back to Haiti. When the word got out, if we catch you, that's where you go and they'll get to stop coming. Can we do some type of deterrence, especially if they let us know? They let us know off the bat that they're coming in Panama. There's huge thousands coming through our jungles, thousands coming from Colombia. Thousands are going to be going up to Mexico. Mexico's not holding on to them, so therefore they're going to come to our border. If they tell our people ahead of time, why wouldn't we head them off? If we could do the things that stop the flow, we should do it. But we have a vice president that doesn't understand what she's doing. We have the Homeland Security Secretary who feels as though he wants to give us a snow job rather than do his job. So joining us now is Jonathan Turley. Uh, do you know him as Georgetown, uh, George Washington University professor, uh, Fox News contributor? Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you very much. So, Jonathan, uh, there's so many lawsuits flying around. I don't know where to start. I was shocked to see that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is suing the federal government to stop catch and release. He says it's affecting his school system and it, it and his and his state, especially with the fentanyl coming in there. Does he have a chance? Well, the odds are stacked against him because the Supreme Court has held repeatedly that presidents have great authority over immigration enforcement. That includes not enforcing. Now, that may seem strange to people, uh, but uh, what presidents argue is that they have a right to prioritize how they enforce federal law, and that can include not enforcing. And that example of that was President Obama, I'm sorry, President Obama saying that he would not deport uh, you know, whole classes of undocumented persons. And that was largely upheld. So he's going to have a tough time. He also has to show that he is correct in being in court as an injured party. I think he has a good argument there that he has an injury yeah. that gives him standing. All right, we'll see where that goes, because we also know the attorney general uh, is suing the federal government of West Virginia, saying fentanyl use is up 87 percent. He says it ties right back to the border. He describes the highway in which it gets there. And that fi- that suit was filed a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think these are real injuries for the states. The problem that they're going to hit is this wall of deference given to the executive branch and the enforcement of immigration. The irony is that Many of the Democrats that are now supporting President Biden adopted the opposite argument in, uh, in the Trump administration. They challenged Trump's ability to use that same deference. So you have a flipping of the roles here. Understood. 
So uh, it's gonna. It's hard to believe. Uh, we also have a situation where uh, the Texas is suing. So on the border issue, that's one thing. The other issue is this mandate, and you see what's happening in these states. There's going to be thousands of medical workers who are going to be fired, just let go because they refuse to get a vaccine. Let alone what the federal government's doing. That's what the medical community's doing at the urging, at the demand of our governor here. And now the school teachers tomorrow, they have to get vaccinated or they're going to be fired. And then hospice workers by the middle of October, uh, they got to get vaccinated or they're going to get fired. So are they allowed to do this? The short answer is probably yes, that the these types of employer mandates have been upheld. And I expect that they will continue to be upheld. What is bizarre is that it's a type of game of chicken with doctors, nurses, military personnel. And the assumption was that they would give. Well, they're not. I mean, they're not jumping out of the car. And so, you know, what's astonishing is that we're looking at a massive layoff. I just talked to a very respected physician who is at one of the biggest hospitals on the East Coast, and this was on Sunday, he told me that 20% of their doctors and nurses were refusing to get vaccines and that his hospital was freaking out because they can't fire 20% of their workforce without grinding to a halt. And he doesn't know what the government expects them to do. And so the response of the governor of New York is, well, we'll just send in military personnel. Well, you can't just parachute doctors and nurses into every hospital in New York. It's not going to very likely succeed. So we have this weird situation where these politicians are pushing these mandates and saying they won't yield, but they may in fact be triggering a public health crisis. Of course. Uh, I want you to hear what the governor said, Hochul. I agree. There's no there's no reason to have an exception. People need to be vaccinated. They should know that now. Uh, and we'll have the legal authority to announce that very shortly. Uh, I agree with you. They, they need to be vaccinated. Uh, testing will not be an option. I just have to get the regulations to make sure that when we get the inevitable lawsuit, uh, that we're that we're uh, we have uh, all the protections and the defenses to make sure we can establish that we did this properly. So. They just want to demand everyone get vaccinated, uh, damn the ramifications. Meanwhile, they told us 75%. I know they change their mind all the time. You get herd immunity. In all these situations, all these businesses have over 80 to 90% vaccinated already. Why cause trouble? Why go in there and say, okay, we got to get that last 9%. And they'll, either that or you're going to have some sergeant delivering your baby. <laughs> well, you know, the other weird thing is that she's saying, I don't want any exceptions at all. Now, that may be a problem legally. She could lose that case. If, if, if these you know, businesses and agencies say that you don't even get a religious uh, exception or exemption, that could, in fact, be struck down in the courts. And also, the courts are still grappling with this idea of natural immunities or antibodies. You know, there are a lot of people, including some faculty, uh, who I know of, who are saying, look, I just had COVID. My, my doctors say I have a very high level of natural antibodies. They say it won't be increased with a vaccine. I don't want to get a vaccine. And so the only issue there for courts is going to be whether out of convenience you can just ignore that. Because 
you know, the, the primary argument against those people is that states and, and businesses simply don't have time to differentiate according to natural antibodies. But these litigants are saying that's as easy as a COVID test. Yeah, of course it is. We know it is. Just make it available. So the NBA is an interesting situation because the NBA is, uh, you know, they're saying we don't mandate it. But if you miss a game because of COVID, passing positive, contact trace, you're not going to get paid. And in New York, we just told you, you just told you everyone's got to get vaccinated. Well, if you're in the Brooklyn Nets, according to reports, Brooklyn's in New York. And if you are Kyrie Irving, you're deciding that I'm not going to get vaccinated. It's none of your business. So he's going to miss 40 games, hundreds of thousands of dollars right now. What does he, if you're his lawyer, what could you do? Well, the first thing I would do is ask for a heck of a lot more money. If this guy's losing 400 grand a game, <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't care how much he's paying me, I'm being underpaid. And you are dragging that case out. <laughs> yeah, I'm dragging that case out. No, the, the, once again, the courts are likely to stack up with the employers on this. The key is that the law doesn't keep you from doing stupid things. You know, the, Oliver Wendell Holmes, wants, to paraphrase his statement, that he's happy to send Congress to hell. It just has to be clear on the direction. And so the point is that courts don't keep out bad policy. So if the New York governor wants to use National Guard and have 20 percent of doctors and nurses fired, she'll probably get away with it. Although I'm a little bit concerned about her statement that there will be no exceptions or exemptions. She might not get away with that. So, Jonathan, yeah, go ahead. But at the end of the day, you can expect that courts will generally favor businesses and these different groups in imposing the mandate. It's just, it seems fundamentally wrong to, to make someone get a medical procedure. If you say we need to test and we've got to fold that in and have restrictions, I get it. But to have a state say everybody go get vaccinated or else. So I want you to hear what Jonathan Isaac said of the Orlando Magic. Cut 39. I understand that the vaccine would uh, um, help if, if, if you catch COVID and uh, you'll be able to have less symptoms um, from contracting it, but with me having COVID in the past and having antibodies um, with my current um, age group and uh, uh, fitness, physical fitness level, um, it's not necessarily a fear of mine. Uh, taking the vaccine, um, like I said, it would decrease my chances of uh, uh, having a severe reaction, but it does open me up to the, albeit rare chance, but the possibility of having an adverse reaction to the vaccine itself. So he can't play indoors. So he's not playing against the Knicks or, or the Nets. It's crazy. Well, you know, these athletes have a particular concern because for most of us, side effects from COVID are not going to shut us down. But if you're a world-class athlete, even a 10% reduction is going to have a huge potential impact. And the question that I think a court is going to have to finally deal with directly and openly is this antibody issue. I mean, if they have an antibody level that is higher or similar to that which they would get from a vaccine, the question is, why should they be forced to have the vaccine? And I think it's going to come down to these businesses and agencies saying that it's going to be just cumbersome to differentiate. But that's becoming less credible, as you've noted, Brian. I mean, it, it also the, the question is that you notice that the governor struck out at the argument that people are willing to be tested 
continually to avoid having the vaccine while assuring they don't have the virus. That's you now see this push against that claim. Here, yeah. Lastly, uh, we have Lieutenant Colonel Schiller, who's in jail right now because he cut a couple of social media videos condemning the way we left Afghanistan after having multiple tours there. And then he said, you know what? I quit. I'm out of the Marines. You want me out? I'm out. So they said, we'll put a gag order on you. We want you to stop talking about it. He said, no, I'm going to keep talking about it. And they put him in jail. Yesterday, they dropped a 600-page indictment, I guess, on him and his lawyer. And he's going to appear in court today. I, I am horrified by this. I want you to hear what his dad said last night. Cut 29. His crime was speaking truth to power, and power couldn't handle it. No, I also that's, said that's that while he broke chain of command, uh, Austin, Miley, McKinsey, they broke the chain of trust and confidence in the American people. We're mad. We're mad as hell. And his son is in solitary confinement in prison. They've talked to him for three minutes over the last few days. Your thoughts, Jonathan Turley? Well, I'm, I'm really disturbed by how they've treated him. Look, there is a long-standing policy against military personnel speaking publicly against uh, policies or outside the chain of command. So I think he knew that. He knew he was taking a risk. He knew it would probably end his career. But this, this absolute, uh, you know, almost medieval response of putting them into solitary, hitting them with this absurdly overstacked uh, series of charges really raises concerns. I mean, I think that the clear effort here is to hoist the wretch to show anybody else in the military, you're not just going to give up your career. We're going to throw you in the hole and we're going to drain you of time and money. Uh, so don't think that you can just leave the military. Because I think that the administration knows this is really damaging. Uh, it's not just they're concerned about the chain of command, which is a legitimate concern. But I think they're also just concerned with all of the bad press they're getting. There's a lot of people in the military who are thinking of leaving. And they are going to hit this wall. What happens when the deadline comes up and you've got tens of thousands of soldiers and airmen and sailors saying we're not going to do it. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, Jonathan, it's unbelievable it's come to this. We have so many people who've got inoculated, you know, 70 percent. I've uh, gotten the first shot. Sixty-six percent have gotten the second shot. As a country, eligible uh, vaccinations, and we come to this where it comes to threats and uh, and mandates and firings. Jonathan, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. You got it. We're going to finish up this hour with you. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. That was Jonathan Turley. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think you it's like any other thing. You, you either change or die. I mean, you know, in, in football, you have certain rules. And when the rules change, if you don't conform to them, you're out of the game. You, you, you have to change your material to the times you live in. My attitude is, look, these are the new rules. You want to adapt? If you don't, fine. Don't, don't get up and tell tilt. 
Well, that is Jay Leno, 71 years old, talking to People Magazine, People Every Day podcast. It was asked, you know, comedy change got to be politically correct. And instead of saying, wow, I'm not changing, he said just the opposite. If I want to stay in the business, I have to change and evolve. And he did it. I remember he apologized a short time ago for some things he said in the past. They looked at with Monica Lewinsky and other things that he said they were insensitive. It's disappointing. I mean, I understand if you want to hit like that broad, you know, network thing, you can't be too risque. But as a comedian, you can't just... What would Don Rickles say right now? I mean, what would he do if he was at his prime? He wouldn't be able to, he wouldn't even be able to be on anywhere except, I don't know, somewhere in, uh, you know, the Catskills or something. Next. Find out if there's more to know, I should say. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D. All right, here we go. Katie Couric, for some reason, wrote a book. And she rips everybody, uh, reportedly, from Prince Harry on down to Martha Stewart. Kirk is just as blunt about her love life. Says ex-boyfriend Brooks Perlin, whoever that is, who was 17 years her junior, was a midlife crisis. She describes Prince Harry, uh, sink of cigarettes and alcohol. Prince Andrew cozied up to Jeffrey Epstein at a bizarre dinner. She describes Epstein's $75 million New York townhouse as eyes wide shut with a twist. Uh, and the book was sparked outrage among people who have read it, one claiming it should be called Burning Bridges by Katie Couric. What's she thinking? I mean, honestly, though, you read that, I'm like, oh, maybe I want to read the book. Right. <laughs> right? But, like, but she said, but, but look how lucky she is. Did a great job on the Today Show. Middle of controversy, takes over for Deborah Norville. Evidently, she puts down Deborah Norville. Thanks. Like she was too perfect. People couldn't relate. Yeah, that's too bad. I, I, I don't have that problem. That's one of my few. Number two is afterwards, she failed everywhere. She failed at CBS Anchor Desk. She failed at her own talk show. She failed at Yahoo News. She failed at 60 Minutes. So she should be the happiest person in the world because on each step, she got zillions of dollars. What's she so angry about? She's, but she still wants to be in the public eye. Is this how to do it? That's her only way to do it at this point, right? Even Geraldo would say after his memoir, he's like, listen, Katie, I wish you would have checked with me first. <laughs> Am I correct? See you at 7 tonight. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.